up. So, would you implant a 160 yes. gigabyte hard drive in your brain? Absolutely. I love how 160 gigs is huge. It, it is very fun. Yeah, it is a real 1995 conception of what uh, a large amount of storage will be in the future. Yeah, I was, I was very amused by that. And uh, 2021 with technology and corporations destroying us all and a virus ravaging our society. Hmm mildly prescient god yeah the opening of this movie is a real gut punch huh <laughs> yeah yeah it's wild and crazy times. so uh hello everybody and welcome again to the good trash honor cast we gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss the film today's course this week's film is uh the keanu reeves helmed johnny mnemonic uh mnemonic uh and so we'll be talking about that i'm still dustin i'm still arthur I'm still Dalton, and I do have to think about how to spell the word mnemonic every time I go to spell it. Well, it, it, well, one of those words with a uh, Johnny mnemonic. Is it mnemonic? Yeah, so the M yeah. is silent, right? I love a silent M. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. The D is silent. So uh, there you go. Uh, yeah, in case you're tuning in for the very first time of the show, what we do is analysis and not review, and that means there are going to be spoilers. However, we do review it the first, which is spoiler-free, and this is how it works out. We got a synopsis, no spoilers. We got light spoilers like you'd find in a review for the first few minutes if we thumbs up, thumbs down this movie. Then we play a mental exercise, and we construct different, uh, uh possible, uh, classes we might teach using this film, and then finally we get down to business, and that's when all spoiler bets are off. You have been warned. That's how it's going to go down. Arthur, do you have that synopsis for us? Uh, sure thing. Uh, in 2021, a virus has ravaged the Earth, and everyone is doing their best to survive. Johnny is a mnemonic courier who has outfitted his mind as an external hard drive. When he uploads some mysterious data, a slew of people come for him, including the Yakuza. No. <laughs> Okay. And Ice Cube? <laughs> ice T, sir. Ice T. What did I say? I said Cube, didn't you I? You said Cube, yeah. you fool. I did. Uh, I meant and, T. And of course, the one and only Dolph Lundgren in his uh, his final uh, Hollywood release until the Expendables movies. Well, there might be reasons for that. But we'll get to that in just a moment as we uh, tackle out some reviews of Johnny Mnemonic. Uh, I know you've been uh, advocating for this movie for a little bit, Dalton and have recently rediscovered it. So I am very curious to hear your review thoughts first. Uh, happy to go first. Thank you. Yeah, I, this uh, dropped on Hulu at some point last year, and uh, I, I got together um, over Discord and watched it with some friends. And look, I was just hooting and hollering the entire time, having, just having myself a blast. Uh, so I was really excited to revisit it uh, just a few months later for the show. Uh, and really crack it open and try to think about it as opposed to just going with it. Uh, and, and I think the, the biggest strength of this film is that it is just constant cool images and cool ideas. Uh, does it stick the landing on any of those images or ideas? No, not really. <laughs> it, it is kind of a messy, uh, jumbled up ass movie. And you can see why it, it sort of came and went and made very little impression on the cultural consciousness recently. I know 
uh, apparently fans of William Gibson, uh, the very famous sci-fi author who wrote the screenplay, uh, didn't really like the movie. Uh, general audiences didn't like the movie. It just it w- did kind of land as a film for no one at the time. But I think, you know, 16 years removed, th- there is something here. And maybe it's just because we know The Matrix is right around the corner for Keanu uh, at this point in his career. Uh, maybe it's because uh, of, uh, as we've already alluded to, all of the uh, prescient material about this film's 2021 uh, hard to say, but I, I just think there is uh, something to be found here. I, I'm not trying to advocate this as a, a lost gem because I, I do think it's pretty wonky uh, in places. That there's definitely some structural issues, some, some plot choices that make absolutely no sense. Um, learning about the production of this film was pretty interesting. Um, it was originally sort of envisioned by its uh, director, Robert Longo, uh, who's an artist and a friend of Gibson. They, they sort of were envisioning it as a... Uh, like $2 million art film. So, you know, a bigger budget art film. Uh, but when they couldn't get that budget, they went, well, I guess it's a mid-budget studio movie. Uh, and then I guess somewhere along the lines, uh, that screenplay got massaged into a more uh, studio-shaped uh, thing. And it definitely shows, right? There feels like too many cooks in the kitchen a couple of times throughout this film, uh, just because we have so many different subplots that don't really go anywhere, kind of colliding with the main story throughout. Uh, again, I, I'm trying to be honest about its shortcomings because I don't want to uh, I either over or undersell this. But I think it is a flawed but charming and delightful movie. I like that Johnny Mnemonic is a deeply unlikable protagonist. I love little baby petulant Keanu Reeves because he definitely, you know, he's not pulling off uh, the sort of leading man charisma that we know he's capable of, right? I think there's definitely a choice being made to make this character unlikable on his part. And I think the film's part, and I, I think that's interesting. I think it's fun. Uh, you know what else is fun? Uh, a laser garrote that rules. You know what else is fun? Dolph Lundgren running around with the damn cruciform knife. These are things that happen in this movie. And yes, it's also 1995 and boy, howdy does it uh, show when we go into the internet in this movie, but boy, what, what more do you want than Keanu Reeves' uh, sort of uh, proto-minority report uh, scrolling through the internet? Uh, it's goofy. It's wacky. I think it's a lot of fun. And yeah, Ice-T uh, is the leader of the, the tech Luddites who are you know trying to keep the signal alive, right? I love this. Like, there's just so many fun things to be found in this movie, and I think the production design uh, really is... is is great. And I, I think probably I, I'm hard pressed to think of a film that does uh, a, a cyberpunk aesthetic uh, this well between Blade Runner and this, right? And I'm sure I'm, I'm forgetting something. Um, but again, this sort of what, 13 or so year stretch between those two movies, you're, you're hard pressed to think of something that tried it again. Uh, and maybe there's a good reason for that, right? I mean, Blade Runner is sort of heralded uh, for obvious reasons as a forerunner in the genre, and this movie cannot help but be in its shadow. Uh, but I just think that there is a lot to like about it. Uh, I'm very curious to find out what you guys thought. Uh, I know Arthur from uh, some some conversation off mic is a little uh, more lukewarm than I am. Uh, but, you know, throw it all together. Uh, all these wacky things I've, I mentioned. I haven't even mentioned Henry Rollins, Dina Meyer uh, and Barbara Sokoa kind of rounding out the supporting cast. Uh, along with uh, Takeshi Kitano, who is a a filmmaker of some renown uh, in Japan. Uh, I have not seen any of his stuff, but uh, sort of an interesting casting. And apparently the international cut of this movie has a lot more backstory and subplot for him 
just going to show one more time sort of the weird production history on this one. But th- that's all I have to say. I think we'll have more fun as we get later into the show. Uh, what what did you think, uh, Arthur or Dustin? I don't really care who goes first. Go ahead, Arthur. Yeah, you you asked what more could I want and literally anything. <laughs> <laughs> is the answer fair uh i'll start with the pros uh because I, I i think there are some 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 things to pull out here uh you mentioned the cgi i i think it has a certain charm to it i, I think it is mm. certainly dated uh but it still looks good within that i i think uh, i think there is certainly movies with cheap cgi that is not only dated but looks bad uh, but I think there is a certain 90s charm about entering the internet here. Uh, I think there's something really cool about it. And I actually thought a lot about uh, uh, the second Wreck-It Ralph movie. I can't think of what it's called. Uh, but uh, think, Breaks the dude. Internet? Is that right? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's that kind of similar idea where they go into the internet. Uh, and uh, and even in uh, Ready Player One, right? Uh, and so it's kind of in that that lineup. And, and I think there's something really kind of fun about that in, in a very 90s uh, kitsch way. Uh, I think there's some really interesting ideas here. You, you were hit the nail on the head. I think this film is filled with fascinating ideas. Uh, the courier, the whole courier thing is really interesting. Uh, the dolphin is really interesting. Did we lose uh, the, the world as it's laid out here, uh, maybe a bit generic in some ways. I think that's just the trappings of the film, but uh, I, I think it is a really interesting way it's set up. Right. And all good sci-fi does sort of predict the future, right. Whether it's technology or, or just the way, man has skewed uh you know you can look at history and then kind of use that to predict what's going to happen and then i think that's a sign of a a strong sci-fi setup and i think you know i think william gibson who i every time i hear a name that name i think he's a, a blade uh a braveheart character uh, <laughs> uh, but i i do think the kind of the bones of this story are really interesting um the laser whip is cool uh, i like all the intertextual references you know the sort of skeleton of the story is very much Casablanca, uh, the characters, the the plot, the way sure. it's outlined, and, and Casablanca is, is referenced on screen early on in the film, or maybe to have and have not. I can't be sure, but it's one of those two, which are very similar stories anyway. Um, but this is a, an echo of that story, this reluctant hero who's kind of a middleman, doesn't really want to be pulled into one side or the other, yet he is, and, and it kind of taps into his not necessarily inner goodness, but something there that, that knows there is something worth fighting for. Uh, and you know, that's kind of echoed, uh, heavily here as well. So I, I, I like all those things. Uh, outside of that though, I, I found a lot, I, I don't take a lot of notes usually when I review for the show, but I took a lot of here, um, for some reason, uh, I think it's miscast across the board. I, I really do. I, I don't think Keanu's good here. And it's not that he's dislikable. It's that it's a bad performance. Um, if this were the first thing I'd seen him in, I, I would never watch another Keanu movie. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, there's something to being a blank slate of a character as he is a hard drive walking, talking. But the decisions, I, I, I think he's too off, too wooden. I don't think it works. And I think the costuming makes him look like a kid playing grown up. I think part of it is a the suit's too big. Yeah, it's some real uh, talking heads. Uh type stuff right yeah it doesn't yeah. work I, I i'm with you on this I, I, think, I, I think i might have oversold my affection for keanu here i i more meant i like the idea of johnny as unlikable yeah keanu doesn't have the experience to pull out this feels like shades of 
you know, John Wick later on, right? Yeah, there, yeah. There's definitely a little of that there. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm right there with you. He's I think, a little stilted here. Yeah, I think this character should be much more weathered in many ways. And, and I think, you know, Keanu 15 years later would definitely nail it. But I, I just don't. It's not working for me here. I see is fine. Uh, I, I like that he shows up, but it's pretty much as I see as he was in Tank Girl. It's that same. It's the exact same thing. Uh, you know, Dolph Lundgren is is out of it. He's in a different movie. Uh, and I think it's Highlander. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> that whole thing is weird. That mm-hmm. that whole, I mean, in a movie with a telekinetic dolphin, spoiler alert, the street preacher is is just in a whole other movie, and it doesn't make sense here. I don't I don't think it works. Uh, Henry Rollins, cool, not good in the movie. No, nope. uh, Udo Kier is the only person who belongs in this movie. He's the best thing going. He's on this movie's call. wavelength for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he definitely. I mean, yeah, you get a weird cyberpunk movie. Who you're gonna call Udo Kier, right? Uh, and so I, I think he's fun. I think, uh, like I said, interesting ideas, but it's just in this bland, uninteresting package. I mean, the movie looks, it's got a great, I think, production design, but I think the actual direction, the tone is just kind of bland. Uh, I don't feel like there's any momentum, any stakes. You know, uh, we have these ideas of Johnny's past and he sold that to, you know, erase his memories to have this hard drive, to, to have this life as a, a mnemonic courier but we really don't investigate that much. And then we have this, I mean, Johnny's overloaded his mind and he's supposed to be like dying within 24 hours, but that doesn't feel like it's really driving anything either. Like it, it just kind of gets forgotten by the wayside. I think they, they come back to it a couple of times, but yeah, it, it doesn't feel like it has the stakes that they initially, I mean, that's the big point at the beginning, right? You know, do you have enough memory? Can you do this? Yada, 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 because you'll have cyber leakage or whatever. Uh, and it doesn't really play with that uh and it feels kind of pedestrian as far as sci-fi thrillers go i think uh the cyberpunk stuff's cool uh but really other than that dolphin uh which is fascinating to me that the, the dolphin is cool idea yeah yeah i mean i mean it, it really does give the movie some much needed juice in that third act for sure yeah so uh it you know it's it's one i i i, I was hoping to have a lot more fun with but yeah i just i do not think it works on 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 screen, I think on paper, probably so. But uh, and, and who's to say what you know? Studios changed and directors mm-hmm. changed, but because I, I think that the ideas at the, the heart of this movie are fascinating, and so uh, I think uh, there's something to be said about that. But I, I think the package just does not does not come together for me. Dustin, what are you? Where are you at with this? So I don't know. I I don't know if I'm in between. I don't know if I'm the same. I don't know if I'm different. I I know that there's a lot that I like visually about this movie. I we've said this. I like the sort of imagined VR, you know, future that virtual reality was going to be the next thing and it was just going to immediately take over. Uh, I like the idea of embedded technologies. I like the idea of just the, the cyberpunk world itself that this movie creates. I'm into all of that. I like Keanu Reeves. I don't really love him much in this. I do find him also very wooden. And I think thinking about something else is what I find Keanu Reeves (laughs) to be doing uh, throughout most of this movie. Um, I am aware that uh, our uh, Jane character is actually the main character in the short story. Yeah, yeah. Molly Millions, another uh, William Gibson character. And I guess she has a uh, there's some rights issue for another potential movie at some point. So that was why that character couldn't be used here. And yeah, Dina Meyer right. just doesn't get set up as like a really strong second lead. And I think you're right, Dustin, the movie just kind of 
forgets about that so it can let Keanu Reeves do most of the action work. And it may be because they have to avoid some of those details of the plot, and so the fleshing out just couldn't happen. I'm not sure what, what, what and why that was all going on with this Jane character being so different from Molly Millions, but I think maybe I would rather have that movie. I would, I think I would rather have the movie where she is the expert, she is the one we're following, and she guides this Johnny Mnemonic character who is kind of a soulless, soulless, I mean, literally sold his soul yeah. with memories in order to make a bunch of money and has got himself in a bad way and finds his humanity. That story is probably a pretty good story. But because of contractual obligations, because of production issues and uh, whatever's going on with you know certain you know uh, intellectual properties, it, it, it ends up being a lot of good stuff that doesn't quite stick. I mean, I love the sort of anarchist commune that's being run by Ice-T. That, I want more of that. You know, give me that my whole life. I'm, I'm, I'm there for it. But it, 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 again, narratively just doesn't quite work. As Arthur was talking about the stakes, and also a little bit with tone. There, mm. there, are, there are moments in this movie that are kind of silly and funny. We've got a couple of these uh, wacky, what I would say, Luke Besson uh, side villains, uh, like the guy that tries to rob Bruce Willis in The Fifth Element. Uh, which I think is actually the same actor who actually drops a Volkswagen Beetle on Henry Rollins's minivan. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, it's very, very funny, but what movie's that in? And the movie Dolph Lundgren's in, which is mm-hmm. not quite Highlander. I'm not sure what it is. I, I was very amused when you said that, but I, I don't know what movie Dolph Lundgren's in, and his lines are terrible. They're Boy, just they're the one-liners, come to Jesus or whatever. <laughs> Apparently he also has a, a little bit of a, not quite a subplot, but at the very least, like there is some deleted content on background on that character. But yeah, I, I, I'm with you guys. Like he is in a different movie and there's, there's probably two to four different movies trying to operate at any given time in this. And that is sort of one of its big problems. <laughs> and, and I guess that's what I want to conclude by saying is I think the art film that is in this movie would have been good. And I think the huge budget summer blockbuster that's also in this movie would have been good, but this mid budget, you know, stillborn thing just doesn't quite work. And I think that's part of the reason why it doesn't quite work is it's, 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 it's sort of in this weird no man's land of artistic and uh, monetary fiduciary tensions. And it just mm. never seems to find its way out. And I think uh, that is a pretty succinct way to, to capture it, Dustin. Yeah. I, it sounds like we're all in agreement on the film as a whole and its issues. It's just kind of a, uh, my, our, our individual mileages are varying a little bit. Right. I suppose. Yeah, I, I think so too. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our initial thoughts on Johnny mnemonic, uh, mnemonic. And, uh, so we're going to move on though. This thought exercise we call, ex- uh, expanding the syllabus. Arthur, can you tell us what that's all about? Yeah. Each week we, uh, sit around and we, uh, Try to construct a film course syllabus or maybe a sociology course or history course. Uh, but nonetheless, it is a course uh, based around movies and readings and articles and essays and books uh, somewhat thematically related to the movie of the week. Correct. Correct. So there you go. What class are you teaching, Arthur? Uh, myself? Uh, so I, I really want to go back to something, uh, and that is the... Uh, this may be like a studio studio classical Hollywood thing or maybe a studio history thing. I'm not really sure, but I, I really want to talk about the weirdness of the nineties. And, and we've, I've lamented this before how it felt like the nineties, I think were the last decade to really give us some weird 
mid-budget genre stuff. You know, uh, we get some now and then, uh, but it feels like it's it's either indie fair or a sure bet. And so I, I think the '90s, and we've talked often about how '99 was sort of the uh, the the breaking point of this weird existential filmmaking. Uh, of the 90s it kind of came to a head in the 99 and i think in the 90s there were a lot of just weird studio movies and so i would uh, entitle this section of a course risky business bizarre studio efforts nice uh, and i would just delve into a, a selection of odd movie choices uh that studios made uh and so i would start with joe versus the volcano um you know, nice which is a very subversive take on the rom-com. I'm sorry. I was just punching the air. Uh, Yes, I agree. Yeah. uh, And it's definitely one I don't think would be made today. Right. I I don't think it would come out not in the the way it is made in, in 1990. Uh, uh, From there, I want to talk about Jacob's ladder. We, I kind of talked about this on that episode. Uh, And so I think that's one I would put here uh, in, in this course. Uh, Another one that we talked about, which does get into IPs and franchises and that's super Mario brothers, uh, which tries to do some really weird, interesting things, I think, with a, a very base video game. Uh, and then from there, there, there are two here I haven't seen. I just am aware of them uh, enough to know that I think they belong in the syllabus. The first is Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days. Nice. Uh, which I, you know, I think definitely works here, as well as uh, John Cusack and Gross Point Blank as well. You know, it was, you know, kind of this weird spec stuff, you know, uh, let's send a hitman to prom or, or high school reunion, right? And that kind of stuff is just really fun. Uh, and maybe the kind of stuff we see on Netflix now, really, rather than in a theater. Uh, after that, I want to go with the the Ben Stiller directed dark comedy, The Cable Guy. Um, nice. I'll, I'll follow that up with Dark City uh, and then end with one we, we all have come to appreciate highly, and that is Tarsum Sings The Cell. Uh, and I just really want to delve into these kind of weird, bizarre movies with uh, either music video directors coming in or commercial directors coming in or just getting weird with IPs and directors like Bigelow just throwing things against the wall and, and just really exploring, I think, what might be one of the more interesting decades in film um, in, in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like that a lot. Well, what are you going to do, Dalton? Uh, we're going to do sort of a, a primer on cyberpunk. Uh, how do you get the most from your corpo dystopia? Right, it's a word that we throw around a lot, especially uh, this last year. What with the the game with with the man himself in it, um, you know, it, it is sort of bizarre, uh, but it makes a lot of sense that Keanu has become sort of, I think, in, tied to this genre even more than Harrison Ford, really. Right, um, Harrison Ford got a lot of mileage out of uh, that one movie, but between video games and films, Keanu has kind of established himself as a uh, sort of the celebrity face of this aesthetic movement of this storytelling um, trope. I, I get tropes the wrong word. I guess milieu. There we go. Th- this this aesthetic and milieu. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about its origins, talk about how it evolved, and talk about where it goes next. I, I think. First up, we, we got to start with sort of this new wave of science fiction that happens throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s that sort of paves the way uh, for William Gibson and guys like him, uh, folks like him, I should say, uh, to start making cyberpunk. But again, it, it really does come back to, and I'm sure uh, there are some authors I'm going to miss here, but Phil Dick really is uh, sort of working in this genre before it exists, uh, especially if you look at uh, a Scanner Darkly, which I've actually read, but, but some things I haven't read that I, I am aware 
uh, sort of intersect with this, like, uh, flow my tears, the policeman said. Um, there's a couple of other ones. I'm not going to belabor the point. Uh, but I, I think looking at Philip K. Dick's work to, to sort of look at science fiction in, in this era that is trying to evolve the genre, right? It's taking it out of the utopic, taking it into the dystopic, and, and sort of a, a science fiction that is wrestling with the post-war era, is wrestling with the mid-20th century, uh, and uh, sort of the economic boom of the 50s giving way towards the upheaval of the 60s and 70s. J.G. Uh, Ballard and Harlan Ellison are some other important names sort of in this, this movement. Um, so we'll definitely talk about that era uh, and then pivot more towards Will Gibson, uh, and obviously uh, Neuromancer being sort of the... Uh, considered the ur text for cyberpunk you know it, it is the work that uh, coins the term matrix as a, a cyberspace that your central nervous system goes into um, it is a, a big e on the eye chart sort of thing that we need to look at uh, but i think at this point we can start of sort of start to say all right well we, we've looked at where the genre comes from where it gets cemented what is it uh, i pulled this quote from a, a fellow called uh, lawrence person uh, who used to uh, be the publisher of a fanzine called Nova Express uh, that was apparently uh, well regarded in some capacity. But uh, he he said, classic cyberpunk characters were marginalized, alienated loners who lived on the edge of society in generally dystopic futures where daily life was impacted by rapid technological change, a ubiquitous data sphere of computerized information, and invasive modification of the human body. And I, I get that does sort of tick off a lot of the the, the sort of standard iconography of the genre. Um, I also uh, really liked, uh, I found a, a little excerpt from an article uh, by an author called uh, Rob Latham, uh, Cyberpunk and the New Wave, uh, Ruptures and Continuities uh, for the New York Review of Science Fiction uh, in uh, well, it's, oh, June of there. Well, I thought I had a year for you. Sorry, folks. Uh, not important. Uh, but uh, he, he is kind of one of the people that made this connection between that new wave of science fiction in the 60s uh, and sort of the emergence of cyberpunk in the 80s. Um, he, he really, in, in talking about these through lines, hones in on the changes of, in technologically and, again, of course, the economic recessions uh, that start to hit uh, the United States in the 70s uh, and this, this sort of malaise that starts to spread throughout science fiction fandom. Uh, and how these works go to work within that that malaise that is is spreading. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, I think once we've gotten that groundwork out of the way, we can pivot to what I actually want to talk about, which is movies, of course. Uh, but again, I think it's important to lay the groundwork there uh, before we get into Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, which we, of course, have to look at, but I also think we need to look at them. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about Jane within mnemonic i think when the three of us uh, after we get through this segment and on to the next one we'll talk about jane and how the film sort of tees her up to maybe subvert some uh, gender issues in this genre uh, and fails to do that and i think by looking at the blade runner uh films we can't we can address number one some of the issues with gender uh that crop up in this genre a lot and we can talk about some of the issues with orientalism that uh, crop up in this genre a ton um and i think to kind of look at remedies to that we look at ghost in the shell the one from the 90s not the the weird one that we made over uh, on this side of the pacific uh, we'll look at ghost in the shell and this uh, fairly recent uh anime series agudama drive uh again both solidly cyberpunk uh works uh, uh operating in animation as opposed to live action but i think both of those or at the very least trying to do stuff with uh, 
well, Ghost in the Shell really more than the other one is is trying to do stuff with gender, and it fails and succeeds in equal measure, I think, and we we can address that as needed um, and as appropriate. And again, I think it's important to look at works of cyberpunk from uh, from East Asia because so much of that aesthetic uh, comes from you know Shanghai and Tokyo, and so so much of this genre is indebted to uh, this this sort of cross-cultural thing going on on either side of the Pacific, right? And a lot of uh, Hollywood attempts to work in this genre fail, uh, I, I guess, in, in dealing with that. Uh, we'll, of course, pivot to the, the big trilogy, but we're not going to watch it. Uh, we'll probably be watching the Animatrix and uh, this new doc, uh, Glitch in the Matrix, um, that I just caught up with. Uh, I forget his name, the, the cat that did... Um, uh, the Nightmare, the Sleep Paralysis movie in Room 237, which we talked about on the show a million years ago now. Uh, he just did this this uh, documentary that it talks about simulation theory uh, more. <laughs> I, I have mixed opinions about the film, and we won't really get into that uh, right now. But I, I think it is interesting to look at the impact, number one, of the Matrix films, but also look at, uh, weirdly, Philip K. Dick again. Uh, Phil Dick, uh, in this this pretty intense lecture he gave in France in the 70s, uh, is kind of used to, to bookend this documentary. Uh, and so I think we can look at Phil Dick's uh, talkings about uh, his, his mystical experiences slash uh, episodes of psychosis. Um, and he was pretty uh, agnostic as to which... Uh, of the two his experiences were, but he talked a lot about simulation theory later in his life. Uh, and I think it'll be interesting to sort of talk about the role that um, the idea of living in a sim plays both within cyberpunk uh, as a genre, but also in sort of the philosophical conversations around uh, both science fiction in general and, and this sort of sub-branch of sci-fi more specifically. Uh, I think that's a good place then to kind of pivot to Ready Player One and talk about the problem with creating uh a myth mythos as just sort of a big part of science fiction, right? And I think one of the big weaknesses of Ready Player One is trying to exist within our own understanding of popular culture. Uh, I think this is a big reason why so many science fiction stories um, have some sort of big disaster that killed all the old culture, right? So that the story we're actually watching doesn't have to address any of that crap and deal with being in the same timeline as, as our reality. Um, Ready Player One's not good, but again, I think it's useful uh, to work with here, uh, book or movie. Don't, uh, they both got the problems. Uh, I want to talk about Verhoeven's brief cyberpunk period. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I necessarily would have thought of it that way a couple of years ago, but uh, RoboCop, Total Recall, and Starship Troopers, I think, definitely exist at the very least in, in that genre in some capacity. But I think their their politics really are of those three films are kind of what attaches it to the genre or that, that milieu the, the most. And we would actually finally get to Johnny Mnemonic and uh, the already mentioned by Arthur Strange days, uh, the uh, Forrest Whitaker, Jude Law movie, Repo Men and the Pierce Brosnan classic question mark, uh, the lawnmower man uh, yeah. calling this sort of final section, the forgotten ones, the, the dregs of the cyberpunk barrel, uh, the, the movies that now live forever in $5 bins uh, let's talk about them because I think they're they're all flawed and interesting in equal measure. Um, so that that's the class again. I think it's uh, going to be fun to to look at cyberpunk. It's evolution. It's sort of the the darker, weirder corners of this genre that didn't get remembered too well, um, and, and sort of talk about its problems within the genre, strengths in the genre, and, and where does this uh, again this 
this aesthetic move from here if we're going to keep using it to tell science fiction stories. Because I think it's useful. I, I think there are a lot of good things within all of these stories I mentioned, even the ones I don't like very much or the ones I think are super flawed. Uh, that was a huge expansion of the syllabus, and I'm deeply sorry. Dustin, I hope you have smarter or less things to say than me. Um, I definitely have less things. Um, I don't Thank know God. if they're going to be smarter or not. Um, I think I would use this movie in a module in a class on adaptation theory, film adaptation specifically. And uh, I think a particular problem that science fiction presents in adaptation is budget. Uh, when you adapt science fiction to the screen, it usually takes money. Now, there are cheaply made. I'm looking at you, Primer, and other films out there uh, that can be made on a shoestring budget that are able to sort of you know, elide some of the big special effects stuff that needs to be done. But overwhelmingly, these kinds of films require quite a bit of cash in order to put together. And therefore, they sort of invite studio intervention. And what ends up happening is, as we were saying earlier in terms of review, there become multiple cooks in these particular kitchens. So you've got the authorship of whoever wrote the initial intellectual property. You've got the authorship of the director or directors. And then you've got whatever the production company is doing. And what happens in that swirl? When do things work? When do things not work, etc.? And we mentioned William Gibson and his uh, sprawl universe of novels. Uh, and Giant Mnemonic is a short story that kind of takes place within uh, that universe. And it William Gibson actually helps write the uh, the screenplay for the film. I think here. he's the only uh, – I know there were other cooks in the kitchen, but I think he still ends up the only credited uh, author, right. unless I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, I mean, he's the writer there, but it's not really satisfying to him, and he mentions that it is not because of studio notes. Mm. And it's not particularly satisfying to fans of Gibson. It's not particularly satisfying to just general science fiction, general audience fans, as uh, Dalton, I believe, mentioned earlier. And so this movie, you know, provides an interesting place in which we still have the author at work on the screenplay, but there's an inability of the author to put something on paper that's going to communicate well to screen and function within the budgetary, uh, you know, restraints of uh, a filmmaking project like that. And so I find just initially that to be really, really fascinating. And then I want to turn over to iRobot. Uh, and I want to think about the uh, Isaac Asimov mm-hmm. short story and uh, that adaptation Initially, in in the late 1970s, Harlan Ellison worked with Asimov uh, to put together the screenplay that was sort of the going screenplay for that property for the longest time. But it was uh, thought to be unfilmable. And so the ways in which uh, a treatment like that is being written by Harlan Ellison and then gets abandoned. And Harlan Ellison is sort of well known as a, a writer who can adapt well to both the screen and to the page. And iRobot as a film generally is thought of as pretty unsuccessful. And so what is that dynamic? What are those comparisons between the story, the selections of the various short stories? Uh, There's a a handful of short stories that dominate Harlan Ellison's uh, screenplay. They sort of work together on the fix-up novel that is uh, iRobot. But it's a different set of the short stories that end up being the basis of the screenplay of what actually gets realized on the screen. And so there's, a, again, many, many cooks in these kitchens here. And so what does that work? And again, major studio production in this case. And then finally, I want to think about an adaptation uh, from Philip K. Dick that goes to an independent filmmaking company. And uh, that is Philip K. Dick's short story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, also known as Total Recall in the film version, uh, produced by Karolko uh, and directed by Paul Verhoeven. And so that film 
is overwhelmingly of the three that I've mentioned thought to be the most uh, has the most uh, longevity endurance uh, is the most interesting is most worthy of remembrance or recall, if you will. Uh, It's, it's doing the most things right. And yet it is the smallest budget of the three and is also again, uh, very much a Paul Verhoeven pro- project uh, in in ways that Johnny Mnemonic does not seem, nor does iRobot seem to be uh, strictly auteur kind of pieces. Total Recall does seem to be a Verhoeven auteur piece. And that's interesting, right? On top of the Philip K. Dick authorship, uh, despite uh, what little involvement it seems Karolko had in putting together that particular film. And so those dynamics of studio intervention, of money, of budgeting, uh, putting together sort of a various, uh, I'm thinking this is an undergrad class, not as a graduate level class, various kinds of Venn diagrams of uh, budgetary amounts versus, you know, uh, author involvement versus directorial control or vision, whatever, you know, auteurship. And what ends up coming out of those things as successes and as failures and uh, seeing what other students might bring to the fore uh, during that particular module. Robert Stam's Dialogics of Adaptation, of course, would be a pretty important uh, text for this class as well. So that would be my syllabus and uh, how I would go about dealing with it. I think it's important to note how good Philip K. Dick was at naming stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, he really is, man. Uh, he also, you know, he is cribbing from, you know, turns of phrase, I think Flow My Tears uh, is from uh, a poem of some sort, and obviously Scanner Darkly is from the Bible. So yeah, he's he's always cribbing just like from a, a time somebody said something real cool and eloquently is like, that's a title. Yeah, yeah. We I Can Remember For You Wholesale is actually a better title for Total Recall. It yeah. really is, man. What a good title. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Yeah. <sighs> it's a great yeah. title. Cooler yeah. that Blade Runner is, of course, a good name for a movie, but do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep just that's a good that's good words to have on the cover of a book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, there you um, go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer. I think now is the time we get down to business. That's well, right. Dustin, you, oh, go go ahead. ahead, please. I was just going to say that's right. It's now time for business. Dalton, could you explain a little bit to the dear listener what business time's all about? <sighs> Oh, well, I suppose I can. I was going to throw to you right up top, but yeah, we'll go ahead and uh, get this out of the way. So yeah, now, now we do what we've come here to do. We, we've laid our cards on the table about sort of what our, our interests are about this film, Arthur, about the choices being made by studios, uh, Dustin about adaptation theory, and me about uh, sort of cyberpunk more generally. Uh, so now the cards are all on the table. We're going to kind of look at this film uh, through through this academic lens, right? We are going to look at the form, the theology, and the or theology form, but theory, maybe. and ideology of this film, uh, and see if we can, you know, make any larger observations about it or other films in its orbit. Dustin, I feel like our our sort of proposed classes fit into each other in sort of an interesting way, just in that you're looking at the direct. Uh, one work to another adaptation. And I was kind of looking at this evolution from um, hotly enjoyed, uh, you know, uh, novel or in some later cases, comic book style that makes its way onto the big screen. Are, are there any notes up top about the, just the form of making a cyberpunk story that we want to talk about uh, within Johnny Mnemonic? Well, what are the cyberpunk rules? Sure. And I, I think I talked about that a little bit, but just to, to kind of hit the, 
hit it home again. We, we, we were talking about uh, number one, dystopias, but number two, people living on the margins of that dystopia, right? We're talking about uh, surveillance states, and I think that's why Philip K. Dick comes up, right? So many of his stories deal with the ubiquity of technology um, becoming more and more pervasive and more and more of a, uh, a tracking element. And I, again, I mentioned uh, uh, Verhoeven, right? The, the sort of person tracking is a big part of the story of both RoboCop and uh, Total Recall. Um, so again, all of these sort of things that we do find in our our, our current uh, lives and our current times uh, do start to make an appearance within the, the strain of science fiction within the, you know the what the seventies through the nineties. Um, did I miss any other big hallmarks? I guess I, I mentioned in my syllabus sort of this fusion of culture. I think is a big one. Um, you know, this sort of the the shrinking of international borders and the consolidation of corporations. Uh, oh, I guess that's another big one for cyberpunk, right? The, the dystopia is almost always driven not by uh, the authoritarian uh, need uh, of a government to control its populace, but more the need to control consumers by corporations. Global capitalism, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Capitalism, not nation states, becomes sort of the... The, the big scary monolith uh, from which we uh, must rebel. I think tech and cybernetics are also a big component as well. Yeah, the, the sort of the taking of uh, of the new flesh, right? Uh, no. Bringing tech into the the human experience, the, the sort of posthumanism um, or cyborg uh, experience. And again, speaking of posthumanism, uh, AI obviously is a huge component of this genre. Uh, the sort of digital consciousness and digital. Uh, constructs, uh, sort of that that's that fuzzy uh, gray, and I think I mentioned twenty forty nine. I think that's a film that does a really good job of, of interrogating that. But uh, I think all the films we've talked about in some capacity, um, even some of Arthur's that are again more in that uh, the cell. Uh, you know, we're talking about the, these big studio swings. I, I think this is a, a just a good consideration for all storytelling. But uh, I think cyberpunk always does find a way to to bring it back to technology as a way to think about these considerations. Absolutely. And I think it's a particular cynicism about technology in general that informs the dystopia mm. of the cyberpunk. Because you can think about a dystopian f- uh, film like uh, The Hunger Games is a, is a dystopian possible future. But it's not really the technology that brought it about. It's, it, it's sort of human nature and the general um, you know, corruption of those in power that drives the narrative in, say, your Hunger Games. Um, or, you know, something like your Star Trek, which is generally optimistic about your, uh, your science fiction technological future that in particular in cyberpunk, they, there, there seems to be this, uh, cynicism that we're going to develop AI or artificial human beings or, you know, more, uh, directly implantable kinds of uh, communication devices within the human being and something of our humanity is going to be lost or we're going to fail to see the real humanity and soul and spirit that lives inside uh, a replicant and that the technology itself is going to bring about, you know, uh, this, uh, this, these terrible set of consequences and the ones who are radically looking into this stuff are those who want to make a buck off of it, and they're unscrupulous in their pursuit. That seems to be the sort of nub at the center of that which is cyberpunk. What do you guys think about that? I Hello? think Arthur and I were both being very polite and waiting to see the other one. Yeah, no, I, I think you got it. I, I think that distrust is key. I, I think that uh, the assumption that technology will always 
uh, evolve faster than our, our ethics and morals are able to keep up with, right? This, uh, this sort of erasure of our, uh, of empathy and humanity towards one another, um, this sort of tendency. And we, we talked about this re- very recently, I think, right? With the uh, uh, red tails, this, this sort of conjoined forces of uh, art uh, and warfare uh, being propelled by technological advancement. Uh, and I think uh, cyberpunk really is an interesting nexus of that idea uh, just because we, it is always, trying to figure out what's the worst possible thing that could happen with the new thing that just got introduced. Right. And I think that's the cyber of it. The punk of it is black leather and or rubber suits and Mm -hmm. neon and electronic music. Studs. Yeah. Studs. Uh, Yeah. That's important. Uh, Fog and smoke. Very important. Uh, And I think politics to some extent, right? Which is why I made sure to mention uh, Verhoeven's works. I'm glad you did as well. Uh, Because I, this film kind of makes gestures uh, towards ideology, but doesn't really, I don't know, it doesn't make an effort to pin anything down, really, right? Like, it's its cool enough that the low-techs exist. Um, they get introduced in this opening crawl and don't really become important uh, till the end of the film, despite, you know, I, it, the film finding uh, ways to get iced tea into scenes, which is a good choice. Uh, but the, the low-techs aren't really dealt with very much, but they seem interesting, right? They've got this former uh, Navy hacker that's a dolphin working for them. That's cool. Uh, they're, again, they're, they're hijacking and cutting up uh, uh, TV signals and broadcasting out the truth. Like the, All of these ideas are very fun, but we don't really do a whole lot with them within the actual uh, runtime of the movie. Yeah, for sure. So I think that's what composes that, which is uh, the cyberpunk, right? And uh, this film's definitely within that milieu. Well, yeah, I mean, they, hey, they got Henry Rollins. I think that that uh, checks the second half of that box pretty largely. Yeah, and, and <laughs> we, Henry Rollins is always a treasure. I just, I love him so much. So um. it feels like, so there's the scene where he gives his big rant, which is sort of a Henry Rollins classic, right? If you get Rollins on board, you're going to give him one ranty monologue. It sure does seem like he uh, knocked it out of the park on set and then really phoned in the ADR. You know what I mean? Yeah. That that was the vibe I got from that, that whole... Uh, tour of his lab or whatever where he's yelling about how uh, uh the tech caused the what, what is the name of the see what, what do they call it the, the, the black N- shakes the black shakes yeah they're, they're nas nas thank you that that's what i was looking for yeah i i i do love uh, rollins as the the most tinfoil hatted character um which again does of course speak to the sort of that distrust of technology we were working with um there's definitely a a nineties-ness uh, for sure to this particular cyberpunk. I think you can always, whatever the science fiction is, you can all usually place it within its decade of origin pretty easily. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, even yeah. if you go all the way back to, you know, your Verns and your Wellses. I, well, I and I want to uh, reiterate oh, a thing that I say a lot about the nineties-ness of this film in terms of its punkishness, which in punk, in terms of anarchism, anti-authoritarianism, uh, that's working in this film that is, is a really, really strong through line in the nineties that I just keep seeing And science fiction in particular lends itself here is that the nineties really uh, did demonstrate all, in a lot of its art, um, something like uh, this sort of uh, strange critique of capitalism that we're uh, beginning to see again, become more and more interesting and popular. Uh, I'm looking at uh, sorry to bother you and some other sort of 2021, 2019, 2018 recent films Mm. uh, in our contemporary moment that was up and coming as a major sort of, you know, uh, area of critique and beginning of intellectual exploration throughout art that goes away in the first part of the year uh, of the 21st century. 
Yeah, we become, you know, the the uh, forever war starting really does sort of, of change the tone. And again, you know, yeah. uh, Minority Report, we've already mentioned, I think that film is, it's got some cyberpunk elements for sure, but it's more Kafka-esque, right? Like the fear uh, of authoritarian states and of surveillance does kind of re- or not re-enter, I, sh- I should say, remains in the popular storytelling consciousness, but we start to engage with it in much different ways, right? Uh, and you're absolutely right, Justin, there is sort of this this dearth of popular movies uh, having that sort of explicit uh, political leaning for a while. Yeah, I mean, what, right. I, what I see in that movie... I mean, it, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, I, I was, was just going to say the only times things are political in that era, they're not science fiction, Right. right? Uh, if they are science fiction, they're much more speculative fiction, like iRobot. You know, they they are concerned or Minority Report. They're concerned with the ethics of a new technology, but their analysis of the the fictional world remains pretty surface level. Right. Uh, I was just thinking about the sort of protesters that uh, Johnny has to sort of wade through when he first arrives in Newark. Right. Yeah. And apparently, uh, there's a a much bigger uh, bit of that in the in the original uh, international cut. But it looks very uh, anticipatory of what we'd see later on in 1999 in the real world uh, with those WTO uh, protests in Seattle. Sure. It, 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 you know, and, and, and so there's a real finger on the pulse there, uh, again, in the 90s. And I, I do think that this particular area of uh, or, or period of film history is really uh, an interesting place to think about uh, political unrest and uh, general dissatisfaction with capitalism global capitalism, globalization, uh, and how some of those things have played out uh, at that moment that I, I think is really kind of fascinating. Uh, and to, to interrogate then, are we at a moment of resume now where uh, we're beginning to revisit some of those ideas? I didn't see uh, Blade Runner, uh, whatever it was, 4,796, um, the, the sequel. Does it continue with the same kind of political uh, teeth that the original Blade Runner does and what uh, what the cyberpunk that we're looking at has done? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think it's actually a little bit more concerned with uh, the politics in the original, probably. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's good. You should check. You should catch up with it. Yeah. Um, it's weird that you were talking about sort of the, the finger being on the pulse. Uh, I kn- I'm probably going to get some details of this wrong because I have remember hearing it on another podcast, but I'm pretty sure it was Gibson um, and some of his contemporaries. Uh, Gibson wasn't involved. It was definitely still some people of that ilk. Uh, had a little uh, science uh, fiction writer think tank recently being like, uh-oh, did we accidentally predict the cyberpunk uh, dystopia too well and accidentally set uh, humanity on a course uh, towards uh, a future we can't escape from? Do we need to make sure we're uh, sort of the, t- what's the name of that uh, Brad Bird movie? Um, uh, Tomorrowland. Again. Thank you. Yeah, they basically had the Tomorrowland conversation of, uh, uh oh, do, do we need a hard pivot back towards optimistic science fiction uh, immediately? Uh, and uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I think <laughs> I don't. I think it's a little bit too uh, uh, wooey wooey uh, about uh, a little too youngian for my taste. Uh, the idea that uh, too much dystopian fiction can manifest it, but I, look, definitely. Um, art has an impact on ethos, a uh, cultural ethos for sure. And I, I think it's, it's definitely worth considering um, the sorts of stories we tell. Uh, to that point, I think we should go ahead and do a quick pivot over to Dina Meyer's character, who yes. doesn't get a whole lot to do. Like we set up, right, that there's this, this uh, you know, Udo Kier's got these, these female bodyguards. Uh, one of them has a, a line in the international cut explicitly referencing their transness. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and Dina Meyer is set up as this this bodyguard who is going to take the job from Johnny, right? She's she saves him from his role as a damsel early on, uh, and and again, there's there's all this sort of uh, gesturing towards some interesting gender stuff in this film, and then the movie forgets to do it, uh, mm-hmm. and then has Johnny go ahead and uh, save Dina Meyer from both her her uh, NAS and her bad implants that don't actually end up messing up that often. So there's some weird choices in this movie. There's a lot of plot holes we don't really have time to get into. But it, it really does force her into this uh, love interest role that makes no sense. She watches this man throw a hissy fit about wanting a good cheeseburger and an expensive sex worker and like immediately goes and sits down next to him and comforts him. And it is not an earned moment in any any way, shape, or form. Correct. Which is a bummer because Dina Meyer's really good, uh, both in this and, and Starship Troopers. It's She's one of those actors that I have uh, always lament that they didn't have a, a more robust career. Um, but yeah, this movie's got a lot of the same problems that a lot of the stuff we've we've referenced uh, uh, on this episode has, right? Like it, it is sort of uh, operating in this milieu for better and worse. Yeah, I, you know the 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 strong female becoming the damsel, I think, is certainly a hallmark of the '90s, where we were trying to have stronger female characters, but we weren't really sure how to uh, pull the trigger on that. I think of Ebert, uh, who I, I think it's Ebert who wrote in his review of Titanic. Um, that he he laments how Kate Winslet is Rose is set up as something of a pretty strong character uh, throughout the film, but in in the end she still needs you know the help of the man to you know, be successful on the boat to to get out or whatever I can't remember mm-hmm. the exact, but he he's lamenting the same point essentially is that you know no matter how strong we make these females at the end of the day they're still the damsel in distress. And it's, right. it's that writing gap that just, you know, men of the 90s couldn't get across in, in these big studio films. Absolutely. Well, and I think this also goes into the Orientalism of the film as well. Sure. That Dalton was mentioning is that, you know, it, it seems like the movie kind of knows and doesn't want to, but does it anyway. Yeah. And again, I, I don't know how much of the, the version of this film that gives uh, our, our sort of primary antagonist uh takahashi um played by uh, takeshi um I, I don't know if that version like fixes any of that right like it, i know it, it hones in more on the fact that his his daughter died of nas and you know his it gets more into his motivations uh but yeah i mean at the end of the day like the the only asian characters in this movie are gangsters right, right. and that's not necessarily to say that all uh, portrayals of marginalized groups have to be shiny and positive but you know they got to be layered Right at the very least. Otherwise, what are we doing here? We're just, uh, you know. And again, that's another big issue with this movie, right? The the Orientalism is there, but nobody has depth, and that does crop up the, these uh, race and gender issues that the the film has going on in the text. For the everybody. only trait that Asian characters tend to have in cyberpunk is the efficient distribution of violence or of sexuality. Sure, and that's a a, a trait of a lot of Asian characters in Western stories, right? Regardless mm-hmm. of. Uh, the time period or, or, or the setting. Um, it does feel like we're erasing the Asian-ness of Keanu Reeves a little bit, but, uh, you know, I look, he, he's the first person to say that he's, uh, you know, in interviews when this has been brought up to him, he's like, I mean, yeah, I, I like to think of myself as an Asian American actor, but I'm not, you know, he, he I think he's aware he's a, a mostly like white presenting dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he's not trying to be a torch carrier for, for anybody, but uh, you know, I just want to make sure we're not, we're not erasing right. that aspect of uh, the lead's identity, but yeah, again, it's not something that gets played with in his movies a whole lot. Uh, and when it is, it's in something like 47 Ronin. It's like, how do we get a bankable movie star in here? Right. 
Um, yeah, we, weird choices being made throughout the that just sort of get compounded by the the larger you know cultural tropes, which is a problem with a lot of these big '90s swings, right? And mm-hmm. I think that I don't know how much of a, an impact that has on their overall appeal, right, or whether or not they end up being successful with critics or, or with the box office. Uh, but a lot of those films, Arthur mentioned just for this class and a lot of films in this orbit that have come up on the podcast, I think one of the big issues is it, it does always come back to uh, an industry, especially when we're, we're talking about like big studio fare or at the very least, you know, TriStar released this. And I think the actual production company was sort of a smaller Canadian outfit. But in any case, there is an attempt to do things and there is a fumbling that almost makes it worse than if they hadn't bothered to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And this isn't a, a problem that stops in the 90s. Um, you know, how many uh, uh, snappy tweets were there about the girl power moment at the end of a, a Avengers Endgame, right? This is a problem that continues to persist throughout studio filmmaking. Uh, an attempt to break old norms uh, that uh, ends up being a, a little bit goofy and pandering. Right. Okay. Um, Go is ahead. it a good time to wrap up and go ahead and just talk briefly? We, we've already a, a, a dealt with the ideology or lack thereof in this film a little bit, but I, I am interested in the idea uh, of knowledge being power throughout this film, right? Uh, Johnny is being chased for the info in his head. Uh, J-Bone and the low techs are interested in the distribution of information. Uh, Spider, uh, Henry Rollins is saying, uh, you know, uh, there's information overload, you know. So, so what does the film actually have anything to say about the, uh, freedom of information about the distribution of information uh, about uh, sort of tech overload is there, is there anything really there or are they just buzzwords that are getting thrown out i don't i you know i, I think it may be a bit foreshadowy on the you know the tech uh, what'd you say tech uh how do you phrase it overload right uh, tech uh, uh yeah information overload i think yeah. is what he actually says in the, the movie itself i think there may be something a bit ahead of its time there right i mean i, I think you know, now it, it, we do live, I th- think, in an age of information overload. You know, I think uh, we're constantly going on our, you know, our devices. We have the knowledge of the worlds at our, you know, at our hand. And I think, you know, it is easy to kind of get caught up and burn out on technology. And so I think there may be something to there that is a little, I don't know about pressure, but at least maybe a bit foreshadowy of, you know, if, if we put the internet in a person's brain or we put this hard drive of infinite data into a person's mind, which is essentially kind of the age we're living in, I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, what are the repercussions of that? And so I, I think he's, uh, you know, Gibson is, is uh, this movie are kind of scratching at something there. And again, I think it's another of the interesting ideas here that, that present themselves. Well, I think uh, secrecy itself is uh, part of the uh, milieu of the question as well. Right. Uh, what secrets are being shared and what secrets are sh- should be open source and available to everybody. And uh, what the movie seems to be attacking is the idea of proprietary information. Mm, the idea yeah. of especially uh, proprietary information that would better and benefit humanity. Uh, curing NAS, a pharmacy company, does the cold calculus of saying we'll make more money if we treat patients as opposed to curing them. That is uh, part of the indictment of the film uh, regarding that, and that technology gives a democratization of that information and gives people like the low-techs the opportunity to get their Linux systems out and uh, run it all UHF, and you can record on your VCR. (laughs) Hilarious. Good stuff. Uh, Uh, But to do that, yeah. 
yeah, sort of, sort of th this idea that the uh, the tools of oppression can often be the tools of liberation, which you know, not an original idea for this movie or for anybody, but you know, that's, that's some stuff, mm -hmm. right? The information overload uh, that prevents people from knowing what they should really be interested in knowing, uh, the locked gates of information. Uh, but the the interconnectedness of all information, making it as you said, you know, democratizing and open sourcing things that would uh, benefit uh, humankind to share. Well, I, I think there's like a sort of a weird, uh, practical kind of uh, key in this, in terms of mm -hmm. technological adaptation, that there is something about the bleeding edges of technology that is useful because it's so new that the companies don't know how to lock them down in such a way that you can't use them for your own purposes and that they uh, cannot monetize them as efficiently. And so the VCR being mentioned earlier, right? VCRs, uh, you can record stuff off TV, and you have it forever, and they can't sell you a $30 you know, VHS cassette, which is about the, what the going price was for Batman when it was first available on VHS. Uh, you can record it off you know, your HBO or whatever you've got. The idea of broadcast itself as uh, a democratizing force uh, anyone with a with a dish can do this and uh, get that information out there as opposed to a cable or internet subscription where there are more gatekeepers for what instrument uh, information you can either consume or uh, project out there into the world and so um, some of the punk aesthetic of that is thinking about uh, not even necessarily low tech as they call themselves but old tech or at least again when the first thing came out because now we we, we perfected the vhs player into the dvd and blu-ray and 4k players now which don't have record functions right and so the idea of going backward to a time where you can use those video capture technologies in a way that you can use them for your own purposes and repurpose them and you know steal or take whatever your screen happens to be capturing uh, to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting uh, analog versus digital conversation kind of happening before that was really uh, mm -hmm. a conversation that had started just yet. Uh, again, an another moment of, of the movie being weirdly prescient. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's I feel like it's time to bring this on into the station. Um, I, I have no other big thoughts. Anybody else? I do not. Well, uh, then let's render a verdict, shall we? Uh, Arthur? I think it's appropriate we start with you. You sort of had the uh, the most uh, uh, outwardly negative opinion. Uh, what say you? Is is this worth uh, saving for uh, cultural memory? Uh, no, it is. <laughs> it is not. It is trash. Uh, I, I have to uh, not argue with you, really. Uh, I think it lives where it's supposed to live, which is on Hulu, right? Th this is a movie that's supposed to uh, pop around different streaming services uh, once every couple of years. And uh, that's sort of the fun of uh, rediscovering it and tracking it down. I do not think you need to own this movie. Uh, of course, Keanu Reeves made other better science fiction movies. Um, yeah, you, you don't have to catch up with this one. You definitely don't need to own it. But uh, streaming is a fun place for it to live. And I, I think there is, a, yeah, there's a lot here to like. Dustin, what say you? Also trashed, yeah. Not not worth, you know, recovering, recovering uh, for the sake of historical memory. But yeah, if it's on, watch it. That's all I got. I found it a lovely film. I liked watching it. It made me happy. I liked, It made me so happy that I said it was one of the films that got me through 2020. 
Um, I am hard pivoting to the uh, social media corner without being asked to do it because I just know that that's what comes next. Uh, speaking of social media and that reference to being on another podcast, uh, if you're following us on Twitter at good underscore trash, you can see that Arthur and I, uh, and I think we mentioned this last week, uh, made a recent appearance. Sorry about dropping a pin. Uh, we made a recent appearance on uh, Caleb Masters podcast, the cinematic schematic that he does uh, over at his website, the Cinematropolis. Um, we had fun. We had a really good time. We talked about movies that got us through 2020, and Johnny Mnemonic was definitely one of them. Um, I, I think there's a lot to like there. It's very charming. It's a great movie to watch with friends, if nothing else. Um, do you have thoughts on Johnny Mnemonic? Well, while you're following us uh, over on Twitter at good underscore trash, uh, you could, uh, I don't know, tell us, perhaps. You could comment. You could add us on the uh, the link to this episode when it drops. Uh, if you've got some real big thoughts you need to get out of your brain, you can go to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for your long-form feedback. Uh, what else? You should also just rate, review, subscribe. You've listened to a podcast before. You know the deal. You know what's up. Um, other things Good Trash related that you should know about, The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, still running, still trucking, still being a great uh, podcast. Uh, they recently discussed uh, the, uh, the untimely passing uh, of one Carmen Leechardello, uh, Christian contemporary music uh, sensation, question mark, um, using that that joke a lot this week. We're going to have to get that out of the, the rotation for next time. Uh, anyway, that's what they covered recently. Uh, it was a fun episode. Uh, Praise Down's good. You know what else is good? The Wheel of Randy with Dan Wade. Uh, caught up on an uh, older episode that he did with uh, Oklahoma City uh, stand-up staple Brad Chad Porter, who is now uh, managing a club in Arkansas. But uh, they are both Randy super fans. It was a very, very interesting episode. Um, all that and more at good underscore trash. Both of those shows have their own Twitter handles that you can find in our bio. Uh, if you go to the pin tweet on the praise down, you can also find a link to their discord server, which is, you know, really more about the praise down than anything we're doing over here, but I'm in there a lot watching movies. Uh, so sometimes you might get to watch a, a movie I'm doing for the, the podcast with me. You know, that's a fun time to be had. Uh, I think that's all the social medias we need to get into for this week. Arthur. We've now come to the time where you uh, lift the curtain on what, what we watch next. That's right. Uh, let's see. Where do I put my notes? Here we go. Uh, next week's film is an early 90s comic book tale. Features a super heroic turn from an unexpected actor. Mm. And was set to kickstart a franchise, but flopped mm. due to demo competition. Next week, only one man knows what darkness lies in the hearts of podcasters. Alec Baldwin knows. Oh, you. Oh, the shadow. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Well, there you go, dear listener. Well, we're gonna be watching the shadow next week. Oh, hey, Dustin's still here. Hey, I'm still here. Oh, hi, guys. Okay. Yeah, I got ran out, but it's okay. <laughs> we figured you had taken your uh, podcasting union mandata- mandated break. That was exactly what it was, and so you know we unionized because we have nothing to lose but our chains. You have nothing to do but watch, and we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.